It has been a whirlwind going through the book of Revelation. And every week it seems like there's something that maybe if you have not too familiar, you go, well, I didn't know that was in the Bible. <laughs> or if you did, you go, oh yeah, that's in there. What exactly even is that? And so when we get to chapter 10, with as much prophetic information and as much literal hellfire and brimstone we've been seeing, there's a little respite in the book here. And, and this break is going to be welcome. To remind you of where we've been so far, especially for those of you that weren't with us maybe when we started, Revelation chapter 1 is an introduction to the book. It is a picture of who Jesus is in his glory, but it's also John announcing the commission he received from Jesus to write down the things he's going to see and send them to the churches. Chapters 2 and 3, we had seven different letters to the seven churches. And we looked at each one of those in detail. And uh, that was uh, very edifying, but also very different from the rest of the book. When you hit chapter 4, there's a definite break. In chapters 4 and 5, we have a vision of Jesus glorified in heaven. We see what God's throne room looks like, the elders, the angels, and all of that. Then when you get to chapter 6, you get to dis discuss what we call the, the tribulation period of, of end times history. And this is divided up into groups of seven. There are seven judgments that come in different sets. And the first were what we call the seal judgments, the seven seals, where Jesus takes the title deed to the earth, some have called it. It's, I think, most basically the plan of God for the end of time. And he begins to unseal this scroll. And every time he opens one of the seals, we get a vision of another judgment. And we saw in that one the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which describes the rise of Babylon, this evil empire that is going to come into focus much more, starting especially in chapter 12, 13. 14, that as this empire rises and takes over the whole world, there's going to be martyrdom, that those that have called on the name of the Lord, those who are Jews, are going to be killed. And that seventh seal was a mighty earthquake with stars falling from heaven that shook the whole globe. Then there was a little short interlude where we talk about the Jews and also those who call on Jesus that are going to be preserved through this time. So then you get to the second set of seven, which are the seven trumpets. And the first four were stars falling from heaven. It is entirely possible that the sixth seal and those first four trumpets have some kind of overlap, but we've already discussed that. The destruction of the plant life on earth, the poisoning of the water, both fresh and salt water on the earth. And then in uh, the fifth and sixth trumpets, we saw demons come climbing out of the abyss that look like locusts that sting and torment the people of earth for five months. They're unable to die so that they can take the fullness of their punishment. And then we saw the Lord unleash these demonic horsemen from the river Euphrates that went out not just to torment, but to kill those who were on the earth. And we talked about last time whether this is symbolic or whether this is literal. I believe it's literal. The interesting debate comes of whether or not these things are visible, but we've already got into that. And yet at the end, we saw that there was no repentance by the people on the earth. Despite this terrible empire that's taken over the world, despite these cosmic disturbances, and now despite demons being unleashed on the world, people have not repented. And there's one more trumpet left, one more woe to come upon the world. But like with the seven seals, there is a double interlude in between number six and number seven of the trumpets. There will not be that for the seven bowl or vile judgments, and we'll explain why when we get to it. But there is a double interlude for chapters 10 and 11 before we get to the next trumpet. And this time it is related to witness. 
So the first one was about, who is anybody going to be able to survive this thing? The answer was yes. And John perhaps was wondering, as he saw these things come down, saw the lack of repentance, he's going to say, is, is anybody going to be testifying to these people and telling them what, what they must do to be saved? Well, in chapter 10, he's going to be strengthened and recommissioned in his own prophetic ministry. And then in chapter 11, we're going to get into the very mysterious and very interesting two witnesses that the Bible describes. So today, rather than more prophecy, we're going to take this, this little interlude as a way to examine how we are to handle and to speak God's word in our own time. And because today is Father's Day, I specifically want to address this message to the dads in the room, to the men in our midst, who bear the responsibility to lead spiritually in the home, in the church, and even in the public sphere as well. To speak, you might call it a prophetic word, in the domain over which God has placed you. As it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. What does that mean? To set aside something as holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So to wash your wife in the word, to cleanse her soul through the word is your responsibility, gentlemen, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Right there we see that men in the home have a responsibility to sanctify, to perform a sanctifying work on their wives through the Holy Spirit and by the word of God. Not only that, Ephesians 6 verse 4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Training and admonition of the Lord. The dads have a responsibility to teach their kids what it means to follow Jesus, to teach them the word. So both of those passages remind us that father in the house has to take the spiritual leadership role. Now we're living in days, as I just described a few minutes ago, where the idea of, of sex and gender is so out of whack that we have to go back to the most foundational things, such as defining what male and female even mean. And there are so many things that are very obvious to us to point out as wrong. But we have to remember this too. If we as a church are going to insist upon God's proper gender roles, God's proper place for the sexes, that includes male spiritual leadership at home. Don't be out there protesting about how we've got to you know, get this stuff out of the libraries and out of the schools and we've got to get you know, homosexuality out of the public sphere because that's what God's word says. And then come home, dad, and then abdicate your role to lead your family spiritually. Or mother, to come home and make it a chore for your husband to try to lead you or to force him out and just pick that role up yourself. Because it's the same issue. The same issue. If we're going to insist upon God's gender roles, that includes male spiritual leadership at home. Sometimes we're very passionate about we shouldn't be ordaining women in the church, which is right, we shouldn't be. But then we come home and it's like, ah, honey, you just take that one. Now we don't have that choice, gentlemen. So today we're going to see five lessons for every father to apply as he leads his family along that narrow road to salvation, all right? Very interesting, very exciting little passage, but we're going to apply it very practically, I believe. So, first three verses now of Revelation chapter 10. 
Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So another mighty angel. We've seen a few of these. The last one we saw was the one that had the key and opened up the abyss and unleashed those demons on the world. Well, here's a different one ascending upon the earth. And this one is enormous. This is like the giant of giants. Awesome to see. One leg in the sea and one leg on the land. And somebody like me, who perhaps this is not the point of the passage, is like, now how far into the sea did his one leg go? And was he standing lopsided or did his other foot like crush down into the earth so he was standing evenly? It's an angel. It's really not the point of that. But it's the kind of thing I wonder about. And he says his, his legs were like pillars of fire. I read one guy who said, John probably took one look at that thing and then wouldn't look him in the eyes. And so he, all his attention was on the legs, which are about at his eye level. Pillars of fire standing on the sea and the land. His face was shining with a cloud surrounding him, and he was almost crowned by a rainbow. So you've got to get this picture that there's clouds in his head, around his head, that it's shining. And when, the, when the light shines through where clouds and condensed water is, that's where rainbows come from, right? Don't ever forget that. I know you get this, but we're not going to cede the rainbow to homosexuality. It's a mark of God's mercy upon, upon the world, but it's also a reminder of God's judgment that he's done this before. And as Peter reminds us, it's going to happen again, which is what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. So some people read this passage and they say, okay, this must be Jesus because who else is, is so mighty and so wonderful? Uh, I don't think that is necessary in this passage to believe that this is Jesus. Jesus in the, in the book of Revelation is consistently portrayed as a lamb, as a lamb that was slain. And we also see this phrase, another angel, another mighty angel, which is uh, the word alas. It means another of the same kind. So unless you believe all these angels refer to Jesus, which I don't, I don't think you have to think that. Um, even angels are amazing to look at. You know, some people say, well, that thing is so amazing and so impressive. It could only be Christ. Actually, even something as amazing and wonderful and impressive as this thing does not even compare to Christ. There's actually twice at the end of Revelation in chapter 19 and chapter 22, where John is going to be so overwhelmed in the presence of an angel, he's going to fall on his knees to worship. And the angel is going to have to pop him upside the head and say, no, 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 no. I'm just an angel, just a servant like you. Angels are mighty and impressive. This one is clearly a herald of some kind. He's got a scroll in his hand and he's roaring like a lion. Now, he's not actually roaring with some sort of animal sound. He's crying out, but it's so loud and it's so amazing that it sounds like when a lion roars. Amos chapter 1, verse 2. The prophet Amos opens his book by saying, The Lord roars from Zion. You got something similar here. And then you got the seven thunders. So he shouts something. It doesn't say what it is. He cries out. And then seven thunders from heaven respond. You ever been outside in the dark when it's raining and a really loud thunderclap happened right over your head? Yeah, you're all five years old when that happens. <laughs> I didn't realize I could move that fast. You know, you, thunder is loud. And this the guy roars and then seven of them respond from heaven. We'll talk about those in a minute. 
What, what an impressive and intimidating sight this is. Someone who's so tall that he's got to have one foot on land, one foot in sea, his head's up in the clouds, rainbows shining like the sun, burning like fire, roaring, and the thunders respond. This is what you'd call an awesome sight. Awesome. And I mean that in the old-fashioned way, meaning something that causes you to be in awe. Awe. That's our first lesson today, especially you fathers. Awe. As your spirit, you as a spiritual leader of your home, we must remain humbled by heaven if we're going to lead our families, to have awe when we stand before the Lord. Now we might think, well, I don't know if that's really the posture that a man ought to take, is to be in awe of something. Well, it's the posture that some of God's favorite people took. Remember Isaiah in the presence of the Lord? who just fell on his face and, woe is me, for I am undone. Remember Samson's father, who says, we just saw the angel of the Lord, we're going to die, right? What about Daniel? When Daniel saw an angel like this in Daniel 10, he says, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So he sees the mighty angel and his, his total appearance changed. Somebody will look at him might have said, Daniel, you don't look so good, pal. And then the thing began to talk and Daniel just passed out, <laughs> just fell over. That's what happens when you catch a glimpse of the spiritual, my friends. When you catch a glimpse of the heavenly, it's awesome. Matters of the spirit are nothing to scoff at. Nothing to mock, certainly. Jude, actually, the, the writer of Jude, he said that one of the markers of a false teacher was somebody that saw no problem with mocking and scoffing at angels and principalities and powers. And specifically there, it seems like he's referring to demons. The idea being that guy has no idea what he's messing with. That the spiritual reminds us how small we are. You know, there's a a meme making its way around the internet where people are saying, you know, angels in movies, and it's like some little fat baby with a little, you know, bow and arrow. There's angels in the Bible, and it's some illustration of the wheels within wheels, and, you know, and it's like, that's kind of funny, but it's actually true. Now, Christians know that, but the, an angel is not just, you know, some cute girl you knew in school. Oh, she's an angel. Well, some angels have four faces and six wings and hooves, so maybe if he calls you that, ladies, you should ask further what he means by that. But there's, there's an intimidation factor when it comes to the things of the Spirit. And you need to remember that, gentlemen, all of us, but especially the dads today. Your attitude when it comes to the Word of God is one of humility and reverence. You're holding something in your hand that came from God. And that ought to cause you just to pause a minute before you open that thing up. Not that you should be afraid of it. You're, you're invited to open it up, but there's just something serious about this. It's not the mark of a pious, godly man to be irreverent. It's always got some joke to make about spiritual things. Always got some glib comment. You know, we can be, we can be so funny with each other that when it comes to, the, to be serious about the things of the Spirit, nobody can take you seriously. The Bible tells us over and over again that young and old men both are to be sober-minded, especially when it comes to the things of God. Many of us are very sober in matters of politics or business, but it comes to church and all we have is, you know, a joke or a, or a comment just to kind of get somebody off our back about something. 
But when you consider that God is in your midst, isn't that a pretty serious thing? When Jesus would do miracles, sometimes it would say that people would have great fear and trembling because they knew God had been among them. And they know what happens when God shows up. You know, we have all kinds of stories in the Old Testament about that. People get struck with leprosy. People's faces start to shine and they need to wear veils so that nobody gets too freaked out by them. Right? People would be caught up into heaven in fiery chariots. God would close the Red Sea over people or open up the ground and swallow them up. And Jesus did a miracle and they realized God was here. Oh, what was I saying? What did I say? Did I say anything I'm going to regret? What was I doing? Was I, oh, I, I really hope the Lord didn't see me do that. There's a sense of fear. Because you know who God is, it ought to cause you to revere him. And this applies to the example you set in your house, gentlemen. You need to insist with your wife and your children that we have a reverence for the things of God. That when we talk about God, there's a different tone that comes into our voice. That we're serious now. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we, we can't smile or, you know, we have to make sure that we're just stiff as a board. But, you know... The church has, has well taken the correction to recognize God as one who loves us, not just one who judges us. But we shouldn't overcorrect to the point where we're flippant with the things of God. It's just one more part of the day. As specifically, and, and how does this look? Don't permit blasphemy in your house. Don't permit your children or your wife to use the Lord's name as a curse word. Don't permit your family to talk about God in the it, making jokes that you, you wouldn't make in front of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll even say, I, I'm starting to change my tune on this one, so I'll be careful and say, this is Tyler, not the Lord, saying this to you. So, some of these Christian comedians are really pushing it. Really pushing the line. It's one thing to make fun of some of the silly things we do as Christians. It's another thing to start taking some of the doctrines and the truths that people are dying for around the world for a punchline. Now, you, you, you seek your own conscience on how best to obey that commandment, but sometimes you can, you can tell what these people are like. This isn't a joke. This is a criticism. And that's not okay. We don't come to the things of God with criticisms, do we? You ought to lead your family to fear the Lord even as they love the Lord. When you're disciplining your children, bring up the Lord Jesus. Talk about judgment. Talk about the fact that God sees what you do. Well, I don't want to scare the little guy. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do, because you don't want them to be 25 going off being crazy, and you're saying if only they had a little bit of fear of the Lord God in their hearts. Plant it in them early, and then teach them to love Jesus too, right? Do both of those things, but you need to do both. So we read the word with awe, knowing that you are approaching something far beyond you. When your kids invite friends over, that if they start to talk too loudly or start to complain about their church or something like that, that your kids just know, oh, Dad, don't joke about God when Dad's around. That takes that stuff real seriously. You know, even if your kids grow up and they get away from you for a time and they say, what was your dad like? Oh, you know, my dad and I, we have our differences, but uh, he was a man of God. I can't, I can't say anything against that. All right, number two, verse four. Let's talk about these seven thunders here. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. Remember, John is writing all this down. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Remember, we heard these seven thunders. Apparently, these were intelligible voices, not just a loud noise, but there was something they said that John was about to write down. From chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord has told John, write all of this, which is one reason among many why we have to remember John did not just come up with this later. 
He's, he's taking dictation. He's writing it down as he sees it. So I, I don't buy this whole idea that, well, you know, John was just basically giving a sermon with some interesting illustrations. No, he saw these things, heard these things, and wrote them down. And yet, John is not permitted to record what the seven thunders said. It's the only time in this book that we see that. He's told to seal it up and not even to write it down. In Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, that prophet was told to seal up what had been written until the very end. But it was a little different. He's told Daniel, write this down, seal it up, because it's not going to be intelligible to anybody until the end comes. John is told not even to write it down. And there's a lot of speculation and a lot of ink that has been spilled over trying to understand what the seven thunders said. And through diligent study, I have managed to figure it out. I'm going to tell you here today. That's a joke. You can laugh at that. But it is true. I bet you if you go home today and you Google what did the seven thunders say, you will find somebody telling you what they said. Even though you look at the book right there, says, don't write it down. There are certain things that we just don't know. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 4 talked about when he saw heaven, he saw things that were not right to tell people. We cannot know what the thunder said. It's entirely possible this could be a whole other wave of seven judgments, just like the seals and trumpets and bowls, but we don't know. It's a great reminder for us that our picture of the end times is not and will never be until it happens complete. We cannot know everything there is to know about the end. And I am one who believes that the Lord has revealed to us an awful lot of information about the last days and the end times. As we've been going through, as we get closer to the end, we'll start to pull it all together and we'll get a full picture of what God has shown us. But we have to remember there are pieces and big pieces that we just don't know about. It's also possible there are things that are going to happen that God didn't write down and didn't even mention that he wasn't writing them down. It, you never want to be so overconfident in your picture of the last days that you, you don't leave room for the mysteries that God has preserved. There are several unknowns related to the eschaton that the Bible gives us. Mostly, the one that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that Acts 1-7, Jesus said, we will not know the times or the seasons when these things happen. And in Matthew 24-36, he says, we will not know the day or the hour when these things happen. So we don't know when, and that's another thing. You go home and Google, you'll find somebody telling you when these things are going to happen. Remember back in 2012 when Harold Camping said it's going to be this year on this date, and a bunch of people quit their jobs and sold all their stuff and were left hanging out to dry? And then his response at the end of it was, well, at least it got people excited about the coming of the Lord. It's like, you probably duped a lot of people who don't want to hear about this stuff anymore, actually. Of all the prophetic information, you don't know when it's going to happen. That's like rule number one. We don't have all the variables. So I believe you can put together a rather, rather robust picture of the end. But we have to always remember, we don't know all of it. We know enough, but we don't know all of it. And this reminder teaches us our second lesson today, men. Limitation. You are never going to know everything there is to know about God and his word. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon said, God has put eternity into man's heart, meaning it's possible to know God. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That means God has given you a capacity to learn and understand his truth, but God has not given you enough of a capacity to learn everything. Limitation. 
That we are limited. If the first one is about how God is awesome and unlimited, the second one is that we are small and limited. Remember John standing there about toenail height of this giant angel going up into the clouds. God has revealed to us an awful lot, as I said. Look at that book in your hands. When was the last time you read the book of Nahum? When was the last time you mastered Zephaniah? Right? There's plenty in there to keep you busy. And there's plenty of stuff that even if you read it before, you read it again and you go, man, there's more. That's going to be a whole other, you know, three years of Bible study to figure that one out. But has, guess what? Even if you were to master everything that God has revealed, it would still not be everything. When you come to the word, it has to be with a sense of personal inadequacy. That this is greater than I am. And even this thing that is greater than I am is not everything. That the depths of God are so much deeper than he's revealed so far. When we get to heaven, it's going to be a matter of learning and learning throughout history. This means you come to the Bible with a teachable heart. You want to be taught something. Some people are afraid of the Bible. Don't be afraid of it, all right? But there are others who are overconfident when it comes to the things of the Lord. It, this kind of goes in, in waves, I've found. Before someone comes to the Bible, they're very confident that they know everything there is to know about Jesus and God. And like, you haven't even read the thing. You don't know what you're talking about. So then, all right, that's phase one. Phase two, somebody comes to the Bible and they realize how much they don't know. And they're completely overwhelmed and they say, I'm never going to get all this. But then maybe they get a little bit of training from somewhere. And then they get overconfident again. And they say, I've pretty much mastered all the tough stuff. And the rest of it is just basic and, and easy. But then as you mature in Christ, you realize again, I'm never going to plumb the depths of all this stuff. Teachable heart. Some people speak proudly. And I found that the people that speak with the most arrogance about the Bible and the church are the people that actually know the least. They've gotten a very simple formula that helps them grasp certain issues. That might be fine, but then they'll come up even to pastors and teachers, and they're not there to learn anything. They're just there to spout off and say what they think and what they've figured out. It's amazing. I mean, I'm getting older, obviously, but especially when I was at my previous church, and I was so much, I was like, you know, 21, 22, 23. How many people would come up and speak so patronizingly to me about the things of God? And they wouldn't even be right on some of this stuff. Like, no, that's, that's not even what that passage says or what that passage means. But folks that get just a little bit of knowledge and have a, an arrogant personality anyway, they come to the Bible like they've mastered this thing. Well, when you grow, young man, you'll, the Lord will reveal this to you. Well, I'll give you an example, really funny story. Funny now, it wasn't funny at the time. But uh, after I, I preached, at, uh, it must have been like 24, 25 at my old church, and uh, this, this very old man comes up to me and shakes my hand, and you know, I, I would get that a lot in those days. It's like, it's so good to see a young man serving Jesus. Oh, thank you. And he says, but you, know, you, you mentioned that you, you believe that God created the world in, in six days. I'm like, well, yeah, because that's what the Bible says. And he said, well, I understand why you think that, but as you get older, the Lord will reveal to you that that's just simply not the case. And I said, but that's what the Bible says. He goes, I, I know. I know. He's like, I don't want to fight with you. He goes, but the, the Lord will reveal it to you. And I'm like, okay. And he, and he left. I'm like, that was bizarre. Not even wanting to look at the Bible, just saying, one day God will teach you that you don't need to take everything the Bible says so seriously. And, but uh, th that's, that's the attitude that we need to abandon to come to the Word and be instructed, but also to come with devotion. That you're not just coming to the Word to get facts. You're coming to the Word to learn the person of God. 
to learn who he is. Not just to learn, what does the Bible say about marriage? To come to the Bible and say, am I doing what the Bible says about marriage? James, the brother of Jesus, said, if you come to the word and you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're kidding yourself. Well, I believe everything the Bible says about, about anger and self-control. All right, well, are you a self-controlled person? And you haven't really learned it yet. You've, you've got the message, but you haven't learned it. You haven't applied it yet. Remind your family that we can know enough. Always tell them that, well, what if there's more things that God hasn't revealed? Then it's none of our business. We occupy ourselves with what he has given to us. But also remind them to remember the mystery, Dad. Sometimes we're going to have questions that we don't quite know the answers to. Now, sometimes the Bible will give us the answers, and it's not a matter of learning it. It's a matter of accepting it. But there are some things we're just not going to know. And we just say, we've just got to trust that God is so good that if he didn't tell us, it's for our best. Read the word aware of your limitation, that you're never going to rise above the revelation of God. Amen? Verses 5 through 7. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, so I guess the scroll is in his left hand, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So this mighty angel took an oath by the Lord that the time has finally arrived for the end to come. Now the word delay there in Greek is chronos. So in your older translations, you might have time, that there would be no more time. Now that is not saying that when we get to heaven, that it's going to be this timeless, formless existence. What he is saying is, time's up. <laughs> There's no more time. And we, you know, your teacher says pencils down and you say five more minutes. No, no, no. There's no more time. She's not saying some metaphysical statement about existence and that time is over. She's saying, no, the time you have to do this is over. Over and over in the book of Revelation, we've heard them say, how long? Well, here comes the angel and says, now. <laughs> no more time. No more delay. When that last trumpet is sounded, he's saying that's when the eschatological mystery would be complete. And you're going to see when we get to these seven bowl judgments, they all happen in a rush. And it really is describing one major event, which is the fall of Babylon, which is why chapters 11 through 14 are largely going to be context, telling us more about this empire that is about to fall before we get to the seven bowls. So a little lesson we get from that just because there are three sets of seven judgments, they do not each occupy the same amount of time. It would seem to me that the first seven seals probably take up the greatest amount of time and that there's a uh, proportional shortening of them as we get to the end. But he's saying that everything that the prophets has ever announced will be fulfilled. Some, one of my authors had an excursus on, are these Old Testament or New Testament prophets? To which I say, yes, all that. Daniel, Malachi, Hosea, Paul, Peter, Jesus, all of it is coming together when this last trumpet sounds. He says that this is going to happen, and it's going to happen, we know, by the name of the one who lives forever and ever. This firm oath of heaven teaches us our third lesson. Men, head of the household, spiritual leaders, truth. That every word of that book in your lap is truth. True, and don't get some cute postmodern definition of true. I mean, corresponds to reality. 
the usual definition of truth. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So that's a great verse because it says the sum, every single one. It's, it's, a, it's a collective description. that It's not, well, it's, it's true as a whole, but there's pieces we don't like. No, the sum of them. And of course, the famous one, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We are in awe of who God is. We are aware of our own limitations. And we also have a strong understanding of the character of this word that we are to communicate to our families. That it is true. We believe that the Bible is inspired by God. That's where the ESV translates it literally. Breathed out by God. Theopneustos. Breathed out by God. That, yes, there are many authors, some of whose names we don't even know, that wrote these books down. But as Peter said, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He was sovereign enough to use their personalities, their circumstances, and their vocabulary to communicate his very word to us. Even some of Paul's made-up words in Peter's bad grammar, if you can believe that. If you start reading some of these passages, it's amazing because Greek scholars will be like, well, this is really, it's hard to understand what Paul was doing with the, the sentence structure here. And I'm like, it's a run-on sentence. That's what he's doing there. <laughs> or Peter's like, Peter is not very sophisticated Greek. Like, well, no, he was a fisherman. He was a fisherman. He wrote like a fisherman. Well, I thought it was inspired by God. It was. God is able to take the words of a fisherman and use his mouth and his pen to get his very words. We believe the Bible is infallible which means all of its moral teachings are absolutely correct. It's interesting. There are many people that want to claim belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, and yet over here with this hand, they're pushing back on the infallibility of Scripture because they're trying to reinterpret the words to mean something else. But number three, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Every single word is true in that book. All of them. Even the ones that you're like, well, what about this one? Yeah, that one too. And also, the Bible is authoritative for you and me. I like to add that one. We got the three I's, right? Inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative. Meaning the Bible is your boss. Tells you what to do. You must treat the Bible as very truth. You might have college degrees. You might have life experience. You might have good wisdom. But all of that authority pales before the immortal words of Scripture. If you've got a, a great idea and the Bible disagrees with you, which one's wrong? Give you a hint. It's not the book that God gave you. <laughs> we do not stand above the word, judging it. That's how some people do it. They're going to open up the book and they're going to say, well, it's got some good stuff in it. But I mean, we obviously the sea didn't open up and God, you know, collapse it on the Egyptians. And uh, obviously these moral teachings are unacceptable in current year. So we can't have those. And that's standing above the word. You see this in a lot of academic circles and then it trickles down. We also do not stand alongside the word where we're critiquing. It's like, yeah, I, I believe everything this Bible says, but you know, I, I don't mind going toe to toe with God on some of these things. But yeah, I believe the word. You know, it's, it's different than the first guy who believes the Bible is just another book. This is the guy that says, I believe it is God's book, but that doesn't mean that I have to do everything it says. And, and you end up in the same place with both of those things, don't you? You follow the Bible up until the point where you disagree with it, which means you were never following it in the first place. If you say, I follow Jesus up until he tells me to do something I don't want to do, you ain't no disciple. 
I don't know what you are, but you're not a disciple. Kind of like I think that there are lots of great philosophers and men throughout history that have lots of great things to say. But the second they disagree with Christ, I break with them because I'm not a disciple of them. And if you do the same thing to the Bible, don't call yourself a disciple of Christ. We stand beneath the word, submitting to the word. You've got to learn to say this phrase, gentlemen, when you come to your Bibles and come across something that was against what you used to believe, you say, I stand corrected. Is it okay for me to sleep with my girlfriend before we get married? Yeah, whatever. You got to get to know each other a little better. Everybody's doing it. What's the big deal? Then you read the Bible that says, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Song of Solomon, do not awaken love until it pleases. Let the marriage bed remain undefiled. Let fornication not be named among you. You go, I stand corrected. Well, I mean, yeah, the Bible says that God made men and women equally, right? So men and women in the home, there's no submission or authority there. Well, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit unto your husbands unto Christ. I stand corrected. I don't believe that God is three in one and one in three. That doesn't make any sense. Someone lays out for you the teachings of the Trinity and you go, I stand corrected. Rather than, well, what does the Greek say? <laughs> I love hearing that. My high school students used to do that to me all the time. They'd say, well, I think it should be okay for me to do this and that. And you open up the Bible and show it to them and they go, well, what does the Greek say? I say, wow, turns out it says the opposite. I would always say, it says what it says in English. It just says it in Greek. It's not magic. It's just a different language. We stand beneath the word of God. Lead your family in submission. Guys, you're all going to have preferences over what you want to do. Sometimes the family's preferences have to die in obedience to the Lord. You're going to have philosophies that you imbibe, or your son or daughter will bring home a philosophy from college or something like that. And you'll have to remember, okay, the word disagrees with that. And I kind of got carried away and caught up, so it's time for me to let that go. You ever do that? That happens sometimes, right? You come across a new book or a new teacher or a new thing, way of thinking and you kind of get all excited about it and you throw yourself into it and then you run across something that causes you to dig your heels in. Whoa, 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 whoa. What did he just say about Jesus? Doesn't the Bible say something about that? Uh, maybe I should just chuck this out and go back to the word. Philosophies. Your politics, guys. Make your representative officials work for you. If they want your support, they can come get it. Because I stand on the word of God. There are so many political issues that have nothing to do with scripture. But when it comes to something that is related to the Bible, you better stand on your own two feet. And we don't, we don't budge on that. Well, we're trying to keep the coalition together. Then you better go back to that, that war room and consider how you're going to get the Christian vote back. Because we're not going with you on this one. Well, then we'll lose. Yeah, but God will honor that, won't he? Imagine if all the, the church said, no, we're not going with you on that because that's, that's, that's wickedness. But if we do this, then they will win. Well, my God is the one that's going to raise up and tear down anyway, so I'm willing to, to take an L on this one if it means I can stand on his righteousness. And people. You got your four Ps there. Submit to preferences, philosophies, politics, and people. You might have people in your life that you love. And if I accept this doctrine, that means that my daughter is in sin and she's going to hell. Or if I accept this truth, that means that that person that I greatly admire is a false teacher. I'm sorry, we stand on the word of God. Hold to it as truth, gentlemen, as a document from God to guide you and correct you. Verse 8 through 10. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. I wonder if John said, You want to run that by me again? So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. 
<laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Wonder if he had to like really yell to get his attention. <laughs> and he said to me, "Take and eat it." What? <laughs> I want. It's just that I, I, this scene makes me laugh. He's like, "Okay, I'm gonna go up to the angel. I'm gonna ask for his book. Okay, give me the book. Yeah, here you go. Now eat the book." Do I have to? It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. This is uh, obviously highly symbolic, you understand. He is first told, then experiences the sweetness of the taste of this book and the bitterness of the digestion. And this is actually calling back directly to Ezekiel chapter 3. In Ezekiel 3 verse 3, the Lord said to Ezekiel, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Sound familiar? You jump down to verse 14 of that chapter. The spirit lifted me up and took me away and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. To eat the book, I think you understand the picture here, is to consume it. We still talk today about devouring a book, right? I read it so fast, it's like I, like I devoured it. To take it within yourself, to chew upon it, to meditate on it, to digest it. We still use this imagery here. That's real Bible study. When you haven't just gathered facts in your head, but it's gone down into you and changed you. This is describing, in one sense, the sweetness of John's vision. I'm getting to see heaven. I'm getting to see how it's going to end. God is talking to me directly. I'm having fellowship with angels. What an amazing thing. And Jesus is going to win at the end. But there's bitterness to it also. Because he knows that he has to go back and proclaim this. He has seen demon locusts ravaging mankind. He's seen people trying to end their own lives and they can't. He has seen the wicked empire take its place on the earth and he knows that such people are going to be cast into a lake of fire. There's bitterness related to it. That's our fourth lesson, guys. The word is bittersweet. It is not always pleasant to speak God's word. That's biblical. Sounds bad to say it, but that's just religion. What does the Bible say? that sometimes it's bittersweet. I'll tell you, lately, just because of the, the passes, I mean, we're in Revelation, right? But also some of the ones at the end of Deuteronomy, I've had to give a lot of hard messages here lately. I don't like that. After you do two or three of those, it's like, can't we talk about grace again? <laughs> can we go back and talk about joy again? And, and we will, obviously. But there, it's not fun to do that. Especially when you know good and well there's somebody sitting right there that needs to repent, and then they don't. That's hard. Jeremiah also, in Jeremiah 15, talked about how sweet it was to taste God's word. But then in chapter 20, he's complaining, and he almost says in chapter 20, verse 7, go back and read it, he almost says to God, God, you tricked me. You gave me this amazing word, but then the minute I start to speak it, everybody hates me. And Jeremiah is not in sin there, but he's very honest with the Lord. He's like, if you had told me what this was going to be, I don't know if I would have done it. Knowing God is the sweetest thing of all, but truth is a hard thing. It's inflexible. When something is true, it doesn't matter if you want it to be false. And to speak that truth can be painful. But you, Father, as the leader of your home, must hold on to the word in its bitterness as well as in its sweetness. There are some folks that get obsessed with the bitterness of the word, and that's how they, they have a good time, is talking about sin and hell. 
And, you know, they're always preaching to a group of like 10 people that are already saved. But they want to thunder about hell. And that's, that's real preaching. I re remember talking to somebody one time who said uh, he was really wanting more in-depth teaching. And I didn't really quite know what he meant by that. And I was like, well, we do. Uh, I was talking about my pastor before. My pastor Troy, he gets into this and that. And he discusses this. He goes, yeah, but like, when is he going to get in and talk about like sin for real? I'm like, well, yeah, he talked about this. And, but really what we arrived at was by in-depth teaching, what he meant was he wanted him to yell and holler from the pulpit and talk about hell. It's like, listen, that day will come, but there's also a sweetness to the word of God, right? If you're only bitter and you're never sweet, you're out of balance. But I think more people go the other way. They love the sweetness of the word. And how could you not love the sweetness of the word? How could you not love the amazing promises and joy that the Lord has given us? But if you avoid the bitter part, it's like eating processed food. You've stripped all the nutrition out of it and it tastes great, but it's not doing anything for you. In fact, it's probably hurting you. I don't, we're not going to talk about blood anymore at this church. We're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about death. We're not going to talk about hell. And you can say that to rousing, thunderous applause, but that congregation is in serious trouble. You've got to do that in your home, too. Teach your family to delight in God's truth, even in the parts that are difficult. Don't let your kids say things like, I wish that wasn't a sin. You go, uh-uh-uh. That's God's truth. We delight in God's truth. And if we don't like it, it's because there's something wrong with us. Delight in God's truth. But teach them also to embrace the fact that truth will imply condemnation and opposition from the world. That if you're going to believe what the Bible says, that means that most people are not going to come to Jesus and they're going to hate you for it. Why won't they accept the truth? I don't understand. How do you not understand? Jesus told us. He said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they liked you, be because you were of the world, just like them, but you're not of the world. So as many people as lament, and it's appropriate to do so, like, well, how come all the false teachers are the ones everybody goes to? Because Jesus said that's exactly how it was going to go. Because if, you, if you're in sin and you don't want to hear it, and you go to a pastor that says, I promise you I'll never talk about sin here. It's like, well, I found where I'm going to stay. Harness your courage, men. Show your family how to face the bitterness of the word. Are you telling me that that means that my mother is going to hell? I'm not telling you. The Word says that. She needs to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But all my friends are doing that. Are you saying that's a sin? Yes, I am saying that's a sin. Are you saying they're sinners? We're all sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. But you have to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus. The truth is bittersweet. There will be tears and there will be cheers. That's the price of knowing God. Because if you're going to find what is true, it's going to make the things that are false st stand out very starkly. And that can be hard to swallow. Verse 11 now. And I was told, what is kind of the point of all this passage? You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The summary of all this chapter is that John has got to keep on prophesying. We're about halfway through the book. Uh, and maybe John needed a little boost I mean, he just saw demonic horses breathing fire riding out to slay a third of mankind. So maybe he was just heartbroken. You know, you ever, you ever been to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. before? Like, you know what it is, but once you see it, you're like, this is not, this is not the same thing. This is not the same as knowing about it. And I don't know if I've ever met anybody that did the whole thing all in one go. Because seeing it is like, I, I don't... I know this is important, but I don't want to see this anymore. And John is probably feeling way worse than that. He's watching people get harassed and destroyed by demonic locusts and fire falling from heaven and the water is poisoned and the grass is scorched and the sun has been blotted out. 
It's making him sick. Maybe he's saying, he's an old man out. Lord, I don't know if I can go on. So strength comes to him. This angel gives him this book. He eats it. It's sweet, but it's bitter. And the Lord's like, you've got this, John. Finish. Finish. And that is the fifth lesson for us today, is that we must speak. You cannot keep the truth to yourself once you know it. It's great that you revere God. It's great that you humble yourself. It's great that you believe the word. And it's great that you've accepted all of it, even the parts that you don't like. But you've got to speak the truth. Jeremiah 20, verse 9, back to him. He said, if I say... I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, meaning I'll keep my mouth shut about the things of God. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. It's like when Paul said, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The apostles who stood before the Sanhedrin and said, We cannot but say what we have seen and heard. There's a sense of inevitability that I can't keep it down. I can't suppress the truth. It's got to come out. This Bible is not just a textbook. It's a field guide for your life. If you're just reading the Bible for facts, some people do this, especially guys that love theology, have a very bad habit of doing a bunch of theology so they don't have to think about any of the morality that they're failing to walk in. Or it's a field guide for marriage. How are we going to treat each other? It's a field guide for work. How are you going to treat your employees or your, your boss or your customers or the government that's going to tax you? How do you handle the public square? That's all in the book. It's not just knowledge. It's action. If you hold back from speaking the word, guys, you will undermine the rest of the lessons you've been teaching at home. If you teach your kids to honor the word and trust God and read your Bible and don't lie and preach the truth and preach the gospel and you get out in public and you're put on the spot and you just knuckle under, that's going to undo an awful lot of stuff. You need to speak it out. You need to say what is right, not just believe what is right. You need to do what is right. Whatever domain you have as a man, Wherever you hold sway, wherever you have influence or have a voice, you need to be sure that if I'm in charge here, Jesus is in charge here. Well, I don't know if they're going to like it. Well, if you're the one who's in charge, use your authority to exalt the name of Jesus. And wherever you go, if you're not in charge, you're an ambassador. You're bringing the knowledge of the king with you. Speak his word. This means, first of all, as an evangelist, right? Preach the gospel. When's the last time you led somebody to Jesus Christ? If you've never done it, boy, you are you missing out. So I pray for the Holy Spirit and he never comes upon me. Well, that's, that's the difference between an athlete and a bodybuilder. One of them go, gets strong so they can get into the game and you know, get down, set a hike and smash into somebody. The other guy gets strong so he can stand on a stage and look good. Holy Spirit doesn't do that. Holy Spirit says, if you want me to fill you up, step out and share the gospel with somebody. Tell them the truth. Well, they don't want to hear it. Then you really got to tell them the truth. Sometimes we do this game, well, I want to become their friend so that I can, you know, they'll, they'll accept it when I teach them. Well, how long is that going to take? Oh, no more than 10, 15 years before I mention that I also go to church sometimes. So, I mean, some people are, will sit there and will let somebody dog out Jesus and dog out religion and talk badly about the Bible, and we just sit there and don't say anything. And it's like, don't you realize they're insulting you too? Don't you have any sense of honor about the things that you believe and have devoted your whole life to? Speak out. And also, not just as an evangelist, but as a citizen of heaven. We kind of have like got this idea that, well, we, don't, we have freedom of, of religion in this country, so we can't impose religion. Fine. 
But it's also a democracy, and there's a lot of us. And if we're going to live here, speak the truth. Well, you've got to be able to give me an explanation of why you think that not using the Bible. I most certainly do not. I stand on the word of God. And, there's, and it's, this is kind of something you see in, in public or in politics a lot. People say, well, Christians can't vote with the Bible because that's religious oppression. And they have to have a secular reason for it in order to do that. Why? Why? Nobody's double-checking what you are when you go to vote. When you go up and use, you can go to the city council meeting just as much as anybody else. You don't owe them an explanation of why. You live here, and this is a place where they have to listen to what you say. So go out there and be that voice. When one man speaks out, the rest take courage, don't they? When one man says, I refuse, somebody else goes, you know what? I refuse too. Yeah, and so do we. When one person stands up and says, here's what the Bible says. Hey, I think that too, and so do I, and so do I. So we've got to be those sparks, you guys. And if we all speak out, then Satan loses. And you, I tell you what, you want to gain the loyalty and the love of your kids, gentlemen? You speak out when everybody opposes you, but you hold your head up and you don't compromise. They're going to come home and go, that's a man. That's the kind of man I want to be. So take courage and speak. Proclaim the truth, whether you're out in the streets or you're on Twitter. <laughs> speak the truth. I'm not saying you've got to pick every fight, you understand. But speak that Jesus is king. Jesus is king, and wherever I go, he's my king. So if you deal with me, you're dealing with my king. Number one, our first principle is awe. How mighty is our God? Have an attitude of respect before him. Number two is limitation. We're just servants of the Lord. We're not going to know everything. But number three, truth. Every word that he said is true and we don't, we don't mess with it. Number four, that that truth can be bittersweet. You've got to embrace all of it, not just the parts that you like. And number five, you've got to speak. You can't be silent. Step up and say the words of the Lord. And these things, of course, are true for all of us, every single person in this room. But today, the fathers among us, I'm speaking to you. Take your place as the head of the household, as the leaders in the church, as the leaders in society. Step out and say, we're going to stand on the word of God and insist upon it. Proverbs chapter 4 reminds us that this is our responsibility. Proverbs 4, 10 through 11. Solomon said, hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. I hope every single one of us fathers, the day that our sons and daughters leave home, we reach out and we shake their hands and we say, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of righteousness and now it's up to you. Whether you're teaching them how to handle a boss with grace, according to the word, or you're giving a vision of the end of the world, it is a father's responsibility to honor God, to learn his word, to teach his word, and then to speak it out. A generation of timid dads related to the word of the Lord will raise a generation of godless kids. That's what happens. I just, sometimes we get like embarrassed in front of our own kids in the things of God because we still think of ourselves as the kid. I want to un unbox this whole thing right now. But it's like you're trying to be cool in front of your 10-year-old child. What if they think I'm lame? They don't know what lame is. You teach them. And they're going to think you're lame anyway, so just lean into it, Dad. <laughs> Then they'll grow up and they'll realize, you know what? The old goat had a few good things to say after all. <laughs> Don't think of yourself as the child anymore. You're not. Think of yourself as the man, the grown-up, the adult in the house, the one whose job it is to pass these things on. 
And you might have said, I, I have not been doing a good job on this. Well, you can start over today. Because we're living in a nation where God is not feared and the truth is squandered and the end is coming and so few people are speaking out. Are you going today to determine to speak that bittersweet truth, whatever the cost might be? Ladies, are you going to support your husband and encourage him and cheer him on? And even if he makes the tiniest little step in that direction, you're going to clap him on the back and say, that's the way to do it. Thank you so much. I love you for that. Pass on what you know as far as you can, even if your audience is only the size of your dining room table.